You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. And what you're about to hear is an irregular episode. Yeah, instead, it's a feed drop of a live event that we recorded recently. We invited Seattle author Molly Weisenberg to join us for a conversation about her new book, The Fixed Stars, in conversation with Katrina Carrasco, who you may remember from an earlier episode of the podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy. And now we are so excited to present Molly Weisenberg in conversation with Katrina Carrasco. Molly is the author of now three best-selling memoirs, although it's almost as likely that you know her from her James Beard award-winning blog, Orangette, which has the best granola recipe of all time. Uh, she's also the co-founder of two award-winning and beloved Seattle restaurants, Delancey and Essex. And Katrina Carrasco is the author of the historical novel, The Best Bad Things, which was a finalist for the Washington State Book Award and the Lambda Literary Award and one of my favorites of 2018. So thanks so much to both of you for being with us tonight. Thank you so much. Yes, thank um, you, Emily. I am so thrilled to be able to do this event with KCLS and with Third Place. Um, thank you, Emily and Kalani, for making this um, so seamless in this weird COVID age. And thank you, Katrina, who... I had such a wonderful time chatting with on the phone the other day. I'm so glad that that um, this has brought us together. Yeah, I'm very excited to have this conversation tonight. And um, I was very, very grateful for the chance to read your book. I loved it so much. And I'm excited to talk about it with you and then hopefully have a bunch of readers find it um, and love it as well. Um, so maybe let's get started. Um the first place I wanted to begin was just at, at the very beginning, you have a quote from Garth Greenwell and um, throughout the book as well, you have quotes from Maggie Nelson and other authors. And I loved that. It reminded me a lot of Nelson in The Argonauts, which is one of my favorite books. My partner and I each have our own copy on our bookshelf. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wanted to, to hear more about what you you kind of wanted to do by bringing in these voices and maybe talking about some of the different ones um, that you, you know, felt like were um, new to you as you wrote the memoir and other ones that you maybe had carried with you for a long time and the process of, of bringing all those voices into your work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I think when people talk about, about memoir or about writing in general, there's like this sort of truism or, or truism isn't the right word, but this sort of, uh, hackneyed piece of advice, this idea of like, you should like write what you know, like that is what, what your job is, write what you know. And, um, and I, I think that um, I couldn't do that with this story because there was so much I didn't know. And, mm -hmm. and what motivated this story, in fact, was was a lot of questions that I didn't have answers to about um, am I still the same person? Uh, mm -hmm. does, does, do other people experience this kind of dramatic shift in their sexual orientation and, and, and the way that they see themselves, um, 
is this something that can happen to a person? And um, I think especially because um, because I grew up during the AIDS epidemic and first came to learn about sexual orientation as a concept and about gayness and queerness through having an uncle who was gay and who, who died of what we now know as HIV and AIDS. Um, I, I grew up knowing that there was this, um, there was this rich world of, um, queer activism and queer literature and, um, this whole lineage that, um, that, that I had no idea that I would ever be a part of. And that once I, as my identity shifted and I began to recognize myself as queer, um, I felt that I owed a tremendous debt to that lineage and to all the queer writers who made it possible for someone like me to get to tell this story in the first place and have it be something that a publisher would ever get behind. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to bring in all of these other voices and all of these other things that I was reading, both because I hoped that they would help me find some answers. And also because I, I just, um, I I felt like, um, this conversation has been this conversation about queerness and identity and family and desire has been going on for so long and I have benefited from it. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to, um, to recognize that and, um, and, and bring it to the table with me. And, um, also, uh, if anybody hasn't read Garth Greenwell, um, <laughs> I know you and I were talking about this. Yeah, Garth Greenwell. Um, <laughs> he kindly allowed. So when he was writing that book, Cleanness, um, I think three or four of the chapters from it were printed in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And I, a friend of mine, um, said, you have to read this short story in the New Yorker called The Frog King by Garth Greenwell. And I read it while I was writing this book. And I just... Um, I struggle to come up with words for Garth Greenwell's brilliance, especially when it comes to um, putting thoughts into language and putting um, desire into language. And so I am just so happy that he allowed me to use a snippet of the Frog King as my epigraph. Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to read that too, as we talk um, from the excerpt that you use as the epigraph. I was grateful for that too, the commonness of my feeling. I felt some stubborn strangeness in me ease. I felt like part of the human race. And I love that you open your memoir with that because I think one of the reasons I was asked to be in conversation with you is um, I also had an experience where I came out later in life and ended up getting divorced from my ex-husband and then identifying as queer and um going through all many of the same changes. And I think um, we do have this lineage of of queer literature to to sort of like guide ourselves with. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think this particular story in the context of coming out later and maybe having lived an entire different life 
before the time of the transition is still one that we don't hear about as much. And that's changing. But I think um, as the quote says that there was a commonness, like a feeling of shared humanity. I really felt that from getting to see a story that was close to mine. And I think that was one of the things that made this book like immediately very dear and special to me. Um, Because I think it's always, you know, the the mirror concept is always very humanizing of Mm -hmm. seeing yourself and someone else and seeing parts of your struggle and their journey and how those match. So, um, yeah, I love that that particular quote from him is one that you chose to open your book with. Oh my gosh. The first time I read it, it just, um, took my breath away. Like it, it, um, yeah, it's so simple and so powerful. Yeah. I love it. Um, so let's see, I had so much stuff I want to talk to you about, so I hope we can fit it in this time. But, um, one of the big, uh, themes of the book, I think for me that came through was the sense of, uh, responsibility to yourself and to others. And especially in the context of, in the story, um, for readers who might not have read it, um, you find yourself attracted to a woman and you're married to a man and then struggle and grapple with what that means for your marriage, for your family, and you have a small child, um, what it means for yourself. And um, you make choices kind of throughout the, you document the choices you made throughout the memoir. Um, So I was hoping you could talk a bit about that idea of when you have a responsibility to to yourself. You talk a lot about motherhood and the responsibility to your child of, you know, like trying to contain a family unit, if that might be less harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, But just, I'd love to hear more about how through writing the memoir, you kind of grappled with that sense of, of what it means to live your truest self and how you come to terms with how that affects the other people in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was something that from the very beginning, so, you know, the, the book opens and, and the story that, you know, sort of animates the book, mm-hmm. they both start with this jury duty experience that I had. And, and right away, the first, the first feeling that arose for me was tremendous shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly some of it, I think, was internalized homophobia. And some of it too was how, like, who does this? <laughs> who spends this kind of time in their head fantasizing about someone who isn't their spouse? I didn't want to be a person who would do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I think we all do to a certain degree, I think it is very human. Um, to, uh, to, to still have desire even after one has a monogamous partner. Mm -hmm. But, um, for me, it was very entangled with, I think, um, the fact of my growing up in this culture, uh, as a female Mm -hmm. and the fact of my being a mother, because, um, even though I think in, in smaller and greater ways, I had always sort of privately chafed at the idea that, um, uh, uh, you know, 
that anyone would expect a woman to give up herself in order to cross over into motherhood successfully um, or as a good mother. I think that at the same time, I, it's still very deep inside me, this idea that because, um, because I um, committed myself to another person, not just uh, romantically, but I committed myself to a child who I brought into this world. Um, And because I was raised female in this society where women are expected to be empathetic and caregiving above all, um, I found it incredibly shameful to try to uh, I found it incredibly difficult to try to carve out space for myself as uh, an adult woman and a human being um, separate from my um, self-worth as as a mother and as um, someone's spouse Mm -hmm. and I think that that responsibility um, I think that the responsibility should feel difficult to grapple with. Um, but I, I think that I was hard on myself in a way that I didn't need to be because of, um, because of what we expect of, of women and of, of mothers culturally. And I, I, I'm still grappling, grappling with it. Um, my partner and I talk all the time about the ways in which I, um, tend to like disappear from our relationship um, you know, when, when I am actively being a mother and it's, mm-hmm. it, I think it is a, a lifelong challenge to sort of negotiate that responsibility, um, without losing myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the experience of, of shame, um, is something that I also went through, um, and there's part, there's a part in the book where you refer to like an exercise your therapist gave you to look in the mirror and say, I forgive you. And I had similar, as we talked about in our chat, like I was told a similar thing by a therapist and it's so hard to do. Um, I think there's, there's such a weight when you're the person who's made a decision, you know, like it wasn't made for you. Someone else didn't do it. When you've, when you've done the changing and you've made the decision to act in a certain way, you kind of carry that forever. Um, and I think it's just, sometimes it's a very difficult weight, but it also, you know, like you have to think about forgiving yourself and knowing like, well, I made, I made this choice that I thought was what I needed and that was in some way like helping me be fully whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that's really nicely explored as well. But sorry, not to interrupt. I, I was going to say I don't know if you if if you feel this to to be true for you too. But I feel like going through that experience and having to, you know, I couldn't deny the fact that the the actions I had taken were having repercussions on other people. Right? Mm-hmm. Like like I was doing this for me. I was suffering uh, as a result of my actions. It was really hard, but I was also hurting other people. And 
in a way, um, though it was very painful to acknowledge that and, and to start to try to like, uh, both be accountable for it without, um, like self-flagellating. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting to think about that now when I think about like the ways that, um, in, in this particular trash fire of a year we're living in, we're all like um, having to get really good at like learning on the fly and changing our minds and like acknowledging hurt we've done and harm we've done to other people. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, um, yeah, I just, um, I find so much relief in not trying to pretend that I, that I didn't mess up and hurt other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in being like, okay, well, what am I going to do to get on with it and, and try to keep doing better? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot in the book about the, the notion of fluidity and it's, it's referred to for, you know, sexuality, but I think also it's that capacity to sort of roll with things mm-hmm. and, and know that things change, they will change more. Um, and to try and go through that process with as much grace as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I do identify with what you were saying. And I think, um, the notion of, you know, choices hurting other people and having to kind of sit with that. I think another um, similarity between our two stories that I also was interested in is the notion that, you know, we didn't get divorced from our exes because they were like bad guys or there was a problem. Like, I think there was the sense from your book that you and your ex-husband were very good friends, like maybe even best friends, Mm -hmm. but you started to feel like it wasn't working for all the reasons that you were discovering about yourself and your sexuality. And I had a very similar experience um, with my ex-husband, who's a lovely man. But just after time being together, I started to realize that I was changing or seeing things in myself that I hadn't seen before. So there's also that layer of, um, you know, you're hurting someone that you really love. And I think that makes it, you know, a choice that feels so much heavier, but maybe, you know, so necessary. And the kind of the, necessity of making it outweighs the fallout Mm -hmm. definitely yeah Yeah, I think I mean I think in our case in an effort to like we always wanted the the best for each other Mm -hmm. and like we always so wanted to be kind Mm -hmm. and and wanted to do right by the other And in many ways that covered up uh, a lot of like incompatibilities that I think left, left both of us in the lurch. Mm -hmm. That brings me to a quote that I really loved um, that again, it's, it's one you've brought in um, to inform your own work, but it's from a Terry Gross interview with um, Esther Perel. (laughs) Um, Finding it here in my copy. That's all dog eared. (laughs) So in this interview, um, the therapist Esther Perel says, when you pick a partner, you pick a story and that story becomes the life you live and the parts of you that become expressed. And sometimes you realize after years of living those parts of you, um, that there are other parts of you that have virtually disappeared. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just loved thinking about the choice that you made, the choice that I made kind of in that context of almost like saving or resuscitating or, or bringing back 
parts that had sort of been lost. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to ask a little more about that in the context of your story, maybe what you felt had disappeared and what you felt um, you were able to to bring back or kind of experience anew um, mm-hmm. as you went through this journey. Well, it's interesting because I like when I when you like when you read that quote now and I listen to you read it, what I like the thing that I think about as I listen to it is this idea of like uh, the story. What was it that she said exactly? I'm going to ask you to read my own. Oh, sure. No, (laughs) I love this quote. Um, She says, when you pick a partner, you pick a story. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, what I think about now, when I think about that, is that I think that Brandon and I, um, we each had a story for the other that wasn't really accurate. Mm. And I think that maybe it was accurate to us when we met and I was 26 and he was 23. Um, but at a certain point, it was harmful for me to believe, to buy into this. It was harmful for me to keep buying into the story that he believed about me. Mm-hmm. And I think it was harmful for him to buy into the story that I was telling him about himself. And, and so I think that um, what's been really interesting as, you know, now we get to know each other as co-parents mm-hmm. um, which is such a different relationship. Um, and as I now get to experience a, a different, uh, you know, um, romantic relationship mm-hmm. is like getting to unlearn the story that I believed about myself in my relationship with him. Um, I think that each of us believes the other was selfish and, and all kinds of other things. And it's so interesting, you know, you were saying something about like having our own story or, uh, mirrored back to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that like the, the story that my current partner shows me about myself, um, is a, is a self that I want to keep being, does that make sense? It does. I love that so much. I love how you've taken that quote and sort of given it a new meaning. Because I think that's a really like optimistic and hopeful way to see that quote, which at first sounds kind of like dire and, you know, we've lost mm-hmm. things, but reframing it like that. I love that. I, it's interesting because when I, you know, when I first listened to that interview and then I went and found the transcript and, and grabbed that quote and was like, oh, this, that maybe I can, you know, maybe, maybe this has to be in here. Um, I, I wasn't thinking of it in this way. So it's so, yeah, it's, um, I mean, writing about our lives is always so, uh, weird, uh, because frankly, by the time other people ever read it, uh, you've probably learned a whole bunch of other things and are uh, halfway to becoming a completely different person. But um, yeah, it's, it's cool for me to hear you pull that quote out and, and see what it brings up for me now. Mm-hmm. Well, I like your interpretation a lot more than the one I kind of originally had because it makes me happier. So <laughs> I'm going to approach it that way as well. Oh, what'd you say? Oh, I was just, it seems like we both like, you know, uh, skated under the wire that one. 
Right. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, language in particular and, and specifically with language um, to define queerness and your own identity. Um, there's a part in the book where you have a reaction when um, a partner's friend refers to you as femme and feeling like that word is maybe like ill-fitting or constricting. Um, so I wonder, um, as you've written the memoir and then, you know, lived past it, do you feel like your relationship to, to different labels in the queer community has changed or how you see yourself identifying um, if language that felt unfamiliar or restrictive feels differently now, or if it feels the same kind of how you've evolved in, in some of the ways that um, like among queer community, we refer to ourselves. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Cause I, In many ways, so so that that moment that you're referring to when this this person I didn't know very well um, referred to me as as femme, sort of in opposition to the idea of of butch. Um, yeah, I had this really strong reaction, um, which was that I felt like I had sort of been like uh, I think I think the way I wrote it was I felt like I'd been sort of calf roped, mm-hmm. um, and I think that. I think that some of it is that so, so this this these butch and femme labels have such a a, a history mm-hmm. and um, a utility in in queer culture um, and um, and and particularly in times when it would be very dangerous for two women to be seen together mm-hmm. um, in many ways. Um, like the, the, the butch in a couple would be expected to, you know, be the protector and the femme would sort of be the one who like brings honor to this masculine presenting female partner. It's like this, there's this whole dynamic. Maggie Nelson writes interestingly about this. She Mm -hmm. talks about this idea of bringing honor to what is otherwise sort of this, um, it's a, it's a strange term to take out of context, but the idea that, um, that usually a masculine presenting female would be like disparaged in, in hetero society. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I, you know, I knew all of this history and I think in many ways, when that word was used for me, for one thing, I felt like, um, I felt like it belonged to a, a, a history and a culture that I had sort of not earned the right to be a part of, like for a very long, not for a very long time. Um, but f- when I was initially coming out and starting to date, I really struggled to refer to myself uh, as queer, even though that was the term that fit best, because that term is so loaded mm-hmm. and has such a history. Um, first as a derogatory slur and and then as a, a word of power mm-hmm. and the same thing kind of goes for butch and femme and for me um none of it really felt like it fit um i think in part because i didn't feel like i fit and i still struggle with it um mm-hmm. it's interesting actually ash and i so my partner um is non-binary 
and uses they, them pronouns. And, um, I identify as female and use she, her pronouns. Um, but I would never like Ash doesn't use the term butch. Mm. And so I never think about our dynamic that way. Um, and so it's still, you know, it's like, um, I think that we're living in this climate when we are incredibly lucky that there is this explosion of language mm-hmm. to describe desire, gender, um, sexuality, kink, whatever you're into, um, and what, whoever you are. And there's so much nuance to all of it. And it's so exciting. And at the same time, um, I, I have to say that it feels really nice, um, to be able to just take refuge within the community that is my partnership mm-hmm. where I don't feel like we have to choose words for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's really tricky. I mean, there is that safe space of a relationship where you're each other's person and mm-hmm. those are the only labels that you, you might need mm-hmm. and the comfort in that. Yeah. And, and at the same time, like I have to acknowledge like the, the power of these, these labels in allowing people to assert their identity and, and their, their right to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, you and I were talking the other day and I, I was saying that, that for me, um, what felt really strange about starting to move through queer spaces or lesbian spaces, um, was for me that the fact of my being a mother felt so unqueer. I think particularly in, in the crowd that my first, the first, the first woman I was dating was in, which was a very young and very, um, very political, um, queer community. And so I felt so out of place because I felt so suburban mom mm-hmm. and um and I I couldn't find where I fit there and um and it's just it's been really nice to to get to see over time um that just like any community the queer community isn't a monolith mm-hmm. and I I now know plenty of parents in it <laughs> but in the beginning I really um I think I, I, I felt tremendous uh, anxiety over feeling um, like I, I, I was an interloper on so many levels. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask a little more about that, um, in particular, just the experience of being in your 30s and entering a new space um, and how maybe things you had done when you were living and presenting a straight were like read differently in queer spaces, which kind of can include like being in a younger crowd, being a mom, maybe just the way that you like presented. Um, and if you felt any friction there as you sort of moved between, but before you answer, I just want to remind everyone, you can ask questions in the chat box, um, for the Q and a period, which will be coming up shortly. Um, but yeah, just to, just to put that note in. So, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I love questions. Ask questions, everybody. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I think that in many ways, actually, could you, could you ask me the question again? Cause you, yeah, yeah. you have a particular way of phrasing it that I really like. 
I think um, if there was friction between moving from more of a straight space to queer spaces and how you felt maybe just you as a person were interpreted, um, yeah. I'm very interested personally in gender performance and um, how if your performance of gender in any way was interpreted differently. And especially I can add in the context of, of in the book, you write so much about um this this idealized sort of womanhood that you see as a young person growing up and maybe how parts of that that you'd internalized like just read very differently or felt like they were being interpreted differently in queer spaces um as you sort of made the transition between the two i don't want to say the two worlds but in some ways <laughs> two very different spaces i i love this question and and i know when you and i talked about this the other day i was like god i don't i I'm going to have to really think about that. And I feel like I, I would love to like, I would love to get to talk more with you about this because I feel like there are, I think there are aspects of my experience that I'm not able to see yet about Mm -hmm. this. But one thing that I do think about is, um, so, you know, I, I, as I wrote in the book, I grew up in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. which was a very, um, conservative place. Um, have you ever seen the TV show Friday Night Lights? Uh, I know of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was like, you know, uh, it, it was not Dylan, Texas, which is where that show is, but it was very like, you know, football and cheerleaders. And I really um, did not, I, I, I remember very clearly thinking to myself as I looked at, I remember seeing a movie poster for it wasn't run Lola run, but it was something very punk looking sort of like that where the female, um, lead had like dyed hair or was very like, um, non, like non made up. And I remember thinking to myself, why wouldn't a woman want to make herself look beautiful? I just, it baffled me like growing, having grown up where I, where I grew up, where everybody was bleaching their hair blonde and, um, the epitome of physical beauty was, um, you know, like those like muscular cheerleader thighs. God, I coveted like American legs. I desperately wanted to have like American cheerleader legs. And so it's been interesting, if anything, like the aspects of femininity where I felt like I could never like measure up as a teenager or um, always sort of being like, I don't want to get a manicure. Like, why would I do that? My nails are fine. (laughs) If anything, um, I felt I've certainly found plenty of women in, in my straight community uh, who um, who share my struggles with some aspects of mainstream femininity um, or what I grew up with knowing as mainstream femininity. But I think if anything, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about what it felt like to take the way that I was feminine and bring it into a queer space. Um, On the most basic level, I think I felt some relief um, that if anything, I wasn't underdoing it. If anything, I could like relax a little bit. Um, But at the same time, again, this fact of motherhood 
mm-hmm. which especially in the, the first queer spaces that I entered into um, felt uh, so present for me because it felt so other um, that felt like the biggest aspect of my womanhood that I was carrying around everywhere with me. And it, to me, uh, read as terribly unsexy, terribly undesirable, wet blankety, et cetera. And I'm really sad to say that, but, um, but yeah, I, I feel so much, um, so much gratitude for, um, yeah, I, I don't know, for the way that I think um, the, the naturally like boundary pushing and, and definition pushing tendencies of queerness um, have, have made me feel free to um, to toss off or to cast off. Um, some of my own definitions about what would make me a, a good woman or a um, desirable woman. Mm-hmm. There's definitely so much freedom in that feeling of of coming out and thinking like, at this point, I could be anything. But that feeling of like a brand new start. For me, I've I've always, you know... Now I would say I'm I'm kind of more femme if I have to give myself a label. But when I first came out, I got a really short haircut. I was like, I'm going to be really butch. <laughs> and I went through this whole journey. Um, and I had the freedom to do that in a way that I would have been terrified to do um, if I if I wasn't part of queer community where I was seeing examples of that and seeing support for people exploring themselves in this way, exploring their gender, exploring their sexuality in ways that just don't seem as encouraged um, in the wider world. So there is that gift of the space where you can really try things on and be like, which feels like the closest thing to your, your skin, you know? Right. Yeah. I love the way you put that. Um, I think we're getting close to our time. So I wanted to uh, have way more questions, but I'm going to just ask one more question um, for this. But um, just uh, to return to the, the title of the book and, and the, the idea of the fixed stars that, you know, there's this constellations that we see, but they're changing what we count on as being solid and fixed is, is kind of ever changing. Mm-hmm. Um, with that lens, I wanted to ask what has changed for you between when you finished the book and now and how you've maybe seen this concept of like fluidity of um, evolution happening and growth between the time that you finished the memoir and, and today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think that the biggest change in my life uh, and like the most, uh, you know, substantive or, you know, uh, change that, that is visible wow, I am, whew, it's like bedtime or something. I'm like, over here. <laughs> um, I think what feels the most meaningful to me is that uh, my partner, Ash, and I got married last November. Thank you. And that was a big, um, you know, that was, that was a big deal for me. I mean, as, as it should be and is for most people, I think, (laughs) but, um, I, 
It took me a while. I, I think that Ash knew pretty early on that um, that they wanted to to have a, a life with me, mm-hmm. and I knew that too. But I think that it took me the work of writing the memoir to um, to I think. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I so I went into this book, I think, hoping to find um, some sort of like solid ground that I could stand on. Right. Like I went in with this question of like, is it possible for a person to change this much? Surely it's not possible. Surely I'm going to find that this was there all along. And even though that will be sad and bizarre that I hid my own queerness from myself for 36 years, what a relief it will be to know that at least, um, you know, there's something stable or there are things we can count on about being a human there. There is a core that is unchanging somehow. And ultimately that isn't what I came to understand about myself at all as I wrote the book. And as I read more about, um, other people's experiences with, um, with sexual fluidity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that the process of, of, of writing the book and of, of coming to sort of believe my own story in a way, mm-hmm. um, believe my own experience and not second guess it, I think made it possible for me to believe in committing to someone in that lasting way again. Um, I find it so, it's not that when I got married the first time, um, it's not that I I didn't believe we would change or that I thought that everything was going to be the same or whatever. But um, in a different way now, I, I know very clearly the degree to which we can change. And the the real uh, discomfort often of of um, growing alongside another person and and committing to growing together and it feels really good to acknowledge that change and the potential of it and instead of ignoring it or um, hoping it doesn't happen to like get busy building a strong partnership so that we can, um, can weather these things. Mm-hmm. So um, that feels really big. And I think I wouldn't have been able to, to do that before finishing the book. Um, I wouldn't have been able to, to say like, who knows what's going to happen. And I want to do it anyway. I love that answer. Thanks. I, I feel so, I feel so much relief, uh, like hearing myself say it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yay, Molly. <laughs> but really, I mean, that's, that's like the, the end knowledge that you've had of this journey, which I think is really amazing. Like knowing that you can change and adapt and, you know, still love yourself, forgive yourself, love others. Like that is, that is the goal. So I'm so glad that's where you ended up after writing this and and living with it for a few years. Me too. Me too. 
Well, thank you, both of you. That was a wonderful conversation. We have lots of questions. I don't think we're going to get to them all, but we'll do the best we can. Um, so the first one is for Molly. You're a very sensory, vibrant writer. Uh, I loved how The Fixed Stars was written in a vignette style. Was it a conscious choice to write the book that way, or was that just how it flowed? Mm. Um, first of all, thank you for asking that question. Um, this book... Um, it so I've I've never written none of my books were written in anything approximating like an order. Um, my first book and the fixed stars uh, were the most sort of chaotic writing processes. Delancey was a little more it was a more it was a more discreet story that I was telling. But for this book, um, the first shape that it took uh, as I was working on it, and I was about a year into writing it at this point, um, I sat down and I opened the the word processing program I was using, which is called Scrivener. Oh. If anybody wants to use Scrivener, it's the best. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm not sponsored by Scrivener, um, but Scrivener, call me. Um, I love it. Anyway, but the first form that this book took was an 11-page document that I called List of Fragments. And it was everything from um, uh, a, a particular word or concept that I wanted to explore. Um, like for instance, Katrina, that scene where, where someone referred to me as femme, mm -hmm. like that was a fragment. Yeah. Um, another fragment might've been, um, uh, this memory from childhood. Another fragment might've been that Esther Perel quote, and they were totally jumbled. And I went through and started to put them in something like, not chronological order, but roughly chronological order. And, and then started to write my way through them. But again, that was, that was more than a year into the writing process. So it was very fragmented. And um, I think the biggest struggle for me was to find a way to tell the story at this particular, from, from the vantage point where I sit now without infusing what I know now into what happened before. And that was really, I felt like I had to really allow myself at times to look, uh, to look worse than I, I always felt comfortable looking, but that was how, how it really was. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, thank you. Um, the next one is what strategies did you find effective for dealing with and overcoming the shame that you talked about feeling in the early days of discovering new aspects of your sexuality, falling in love while married and just being your authentic self within our heteronormative culture? Um, uh, the number one thing was therapy, uh, big time. Um, my therapist, I, I actually sought out a new therapist at the, at the beginning of this, uh, this period of my life. Um, and, uh, it's been very helpful to me that he is gay and, um, and just that, um, yeah, having a therapist who I, I really believed understood where I was coming from and who could really call me out on my stuff. And, and my, because my stuff was often um, me 
talking really badly about myself in my own head. And so, yeah, largely it was um, therapy. I think that um, you you could probably do that with some very good friends too. But um, yeah, for me, it took every bit of um, a lot of therapy and and also a lot of conversations with friends and a lot of writing and a lot of reading, a lot of reading. Let me I also the queer therapist. Sorry, sorry. I'm- <laughs> I was just saying, I also found a queer therapist after coming out and it was a, a huge deal. And for me, another big thing that helped me was finding queer community. Um, just trying to meet other people who not necessarily had gone through the same thing, but just a place where I could see myself um, making kind of new friends, like a new home. Because it feels so, I mean, there's the shame and then there's also the sense of like uprooting your life. And I yeah. think giving yourself an idea of where you could maybe land and and be happy again is really important. So you have something to look forward to and not just a place to sit and be like ashamed and scared. Cause there's a lot of that, but you can try to try to find somewhere soft to land. Mm-hmm. That. Um, this is another question for Molly as uh, someone who writes a lot about her own life, not just yourself, but also the other people in it especially as a parent and a partner, how do you think about your responsibility to sort of protect those people and also be as vulnerable and intimate as you are in the book? Um, Yeah, this is something I think about a lot. Um, So um, that, so I I think for one thing, um, one thing that that I have thought about um, with with each book, and and something that I learned in writing my first book, A Homemade Life, um, is that you can't tell someone else's story, and you can't tell someone else's perspective because um, you can't. It, it's not good writing, and it it reads as false. Um, and that, I know that sounds really simplistic, but um, I think about it in, in the case of my first book when I was writing about a lot about my father, um, who was um, he had already lived a, a very full life by the time I was born. He was almost 50 when I was born. And um, the very first book that I tried to write, which doesn't exist, um, was was a, a book really about my father, very specifically, and, and about losing him when I was in my early 20s. And the further that I tried to get into writing it, the more I realized that I could not write a book about my father um, without um, calling into the room uh, the, the person he was for the first 50 years of his life. And, and that part of him didn't belong to me. And if anything, it belongs to his other children from who, who were from his first marriage and knew him better than I did in many ways. So... Um, so something that, that I took away from that is the idea that I, I, I really, um, I, I can only write about um, where my life intersects with someone else's. Um, and that moment is, um, in that moment, I have to be sure that I am staying in my own perspective and that I am not making assumptions about what someone else thinks. Um what someone else would say, um, and, um, and, and that I can't, um, for instance, there are characters in, in the fixed stars who, 
um, whose behavior I think could be further fleshed out um, by some other assumptions I have about them, but they never told me those things and I know their assumptions. And so they're not in the book. And I tried to make very sure that they don't color the way I portrayed this person. So really trying to write my story where it happens to intersect with other people. The other thing is making sure that I had um, early readers who I could really trust, who I could trust to tell me if I was being, um, if I was overstepping, if I was being mean or catty, um, that, that is absolutely invaluable. Um, and then the other thing is, I, I think just having some real ground rules too, like, um, I, I really, um, you know, I, I think I, when June was a baby, uh, I, I didn't think a lot about, you know, um, posting pictures of her on social media or, uh, on my website or writing about her. And, um, by the time she was a toddler, that started to feel really different to me. And so as I was writing this book, trying to figure out how to, um, write my story without bringing more of her in than, than felt safe because I, I can't really get her consent. She's seven years old. So trying to find ways to write about what, um, what, what it has been like for me to be a mother, but not what it is like to have her as my daughter or what she is like. Um, and it's all a very gray area. And um, I, I think it, um, I definitely would not be able to do it alone without people around me to, um, to help me see what I'm doing and, and when I need to fix it or, um, or be more respectful. Thank you. Uh, okay. One last question. Uh, what other book or author suggestions do you have for people who are coming to a new understanding about their sexuality? Oh my gosh. Okay. Wait, Katrina, I want, I want you to, um, to suggest some too. I imagine we would both recommend the Argonauts. Yes. I yeah, Maggie Nelson. have this. Right. <laughs> Excellent. We have two copies of this in our house. So <laughs> Nelson's great. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently read, um, uh, James Baldwin. Amazing. Um, James Baldwin's early work, um, like Giovanni's room mm -hmm. is a bit homophobic. Um, there's some real self-loathing in there, but it's also, uh, the interiority of it and the way that he writes about desire. Um, and, and sort of the queerness that's inherent in it is really beautiful. Um, let's see what else. Ah, Fun Home by Allison. Oh, yes. Read Fun Home. <laughs> yeah, Fun Home. Big time. Um, I, I love The Passion by Jeanette Winterson. I haven't read it. Um, it's it's beautiful. And it's it's I think it, it's very um, just to the, the, specific, the specific point of coming out. There's a great quote where it's like, if you find desire late in life, you have to tie yourself to the mast because you'll just go like screaming towards what you miss, but you also into this new future. Like it's an amazing, I think I've like highlighted it too many times. 
The passion is what it's called. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's tremendous. And um, I think it's good to know that the journey is not always easy or smooth. And I think that book really beautifully illustrates that, which is not to say don't take the journey, but it's, I found it to be a helpful kind of companion. Yes. Um, For me also reading Adrienne Rich, um, her, she has a collection called, uh, gosh, I think, uh, the dream of a new language or the dream of a common language. And then also diving into the wreck. She has some amazing, uh, lesbian love poems, um, and specifically writing about the desire to want to tell the world who you are and who you love. Um, there's I love the- Ali Smith, How to Be Both. I don't know. I feel like yeah. just as a reader, I before I was out, I just gravitated toward queer stories and loved them and like didn't really understand why. So, so many of them are very foundational for me, even though they took on new meaning later in my life. Um, I also, I don't, you know, uh, so, okay, a book that is, is that I read when I was 16, uh, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Chabon. Mm-hmm. Um, is, uh, it was his first novel and the, the, the protagonist in it is, I don't think he ever gives himself a label, but he has bisexual experiences in it. And I really, I loved it. Um, and then most recently, have you read the death of Vivek Oji? No, but I really want to, I've heard amazing things. Yeah. Um, it, I just finished it a few days ago and it is a beautiful story of queerness. I mean, a, a beautiful story about so many things, but with a, a, a main character who's gender variant. And it's just, um, oh my gosh, it's stunning. Really okay. beautiful. I'll get it from third place with the rest of the books I'm constantly ordering. Yes. yes. <laughs> For curbside pickup. Excellent. Excellent. Well, my gosh, thank you so much, Katrina. This was such a pleasure. I hope we'll stay in touch. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Emily, for hosting. Our pleasure. Thank you so much to both of you for being here and for a really wonderful conversation.